Hey, welcome back to Talk Gnosis, uh, live from Montreal. It's a beautiful sunny day here, and with me as always, most of the time, because we have rotating co-hosts, it's Bishop Lady Peterson, live from Chicago. Hi, Bishop Peterson. How you doing? I'm fantastic, fantastic. I'm really excited about our topic and our guest tonight. Uh, this is almost Talk Gnosis's eight-year anniversary. For eight years, I've been meeting to book a show on Sufism. Now we've finally done it, <laughs> and tonight we're talking Sufism and the Indiotia with uh, Sarah Layla. Uh, hi, Sarah. Hi. So we're going to jump right in. Oh, and Sarah is also joining us live from Montreal on a, on a beautiful evening. Um, we, we try to record these for posterity, but we're still in the middle of the COVID crisis. But we've gotten great news in Montreal that we're allowed to go to the parks and even hang out with people as, as long as we're uh, six feet apart. So uh, f fantastic news out of here in Montreal. But that's not what we're here to talk about. Uh, Sarah, we're yeah. starting with... An enormous giant question, which uh, I know that we could do an endless mini-series on, but uh, we're going to do our best. And the question is, what is Sufism? <laughs> yeah, that is an enormous question. And I think that um, in a lot of ways, uh, part of its enormity is, is that Sufism encompasses so much, so many different ways of being and approaches to spiritual development and um, journeys towards divine unity that uh, that anyone's experience under kind of the umbrella of Sufism could be used in response to that. Um, but I have a wonderful uh, I have a wonderful guidance on this because the founder of the tradition that I study actually um, this I'm going to share this quote because it's great. It says, if anybody asks you what is Sufism, you may answer, Sufism is the religion of the heart, mm. the religion in which the most important thing is to seek God in the heart of humanity. So those are the words of Hazrat Inayat Khan. And um, as I said, the founder of the lineage that I study, which we'll, we'll get into a little later. But so to me, when, when people speak to me and say, well, what is Sufism? I, I, it, I do often speak of it as the path of the heart. And, um, you know, that, that can mean different things in different contexts, but this unfolding kind of of the heart, the softening of the heart, uh, we often talk about the softening of the ego, but one of the beautiful things that you see in that, in that quote, or that you hear rather in that quote, um, is also that it's not an, ind an entirely individual journey. It's, it's seeking God in the heart of humanity. So there's a deeply humanistic side to um to the sufi path which kind of recognizes both that we come from and return to a single unified kind of divine presence um and also in between each of us represents these fragments or or or, or these um sort of rays of of that divine presence which have manifested in 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 kind of quite diverse and 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 deeply uh individuated ways and that that respect for an understanding of and compassion to and and heart opening to 
all of those other sort of facets of the divine as they show up in humanity is also a, an equal part of the journey. Amazing, thank you. Um, okay, so so you already touched on it, but uh, what is the Inayatia, and who was uh, Hazrat Inayat Khan? And one last part of the question, and uh, correct correct my pronunciation. And who is Pier Viliat in uh, Inayat Khan? Pier Viliat Inayat Khan. So so I'll I'll break your question down. So so the Inayatia. Um, is actually the, the kind of newly um, dubbed name for what was formerly known as the Inayati order. And prior to that was often known as the Sufi order, sometimes Sufi order of the West. So that was established actually, you know, many decades ago as, as the Sufi order. Um, and in recent years kind of reclaimed its uh, direct lineage through Hazrat Inayat Khan with the name of the Inayati order, and then more recently, the Inayatiya. And so that is a particular, um, one could speak of it as a, a branch, or in Arabic, often we see ta a tarika, like a path. Um, there are many, many different forms of Sufism around the world um, that follow, they could all be understood in, in some sense as the path of the heart, but they have their own particular practices and traditions. Sometimes there's kind of colors that are associated with these orders. Um, they, they might be associated with a particular uh, geographical location. And each of them has a lineage of, um, of, uh, of, of teachers, of those who are, are kind of... Um, given the responsibility to, to hold these wisdom teachings and, and pass them on to the next generation of seekers. And so there are many, many, many different um, tarikas, many different paths, many different lineages or branches of Sufism. So the Inayatiya is one particular branch of Sufism um, that has, uh, that traces itself through what's known historically as the Chisti or Chistia, uh, which, which came um, to the West, to North America and Europe from India in the form of Hazrat Nayak Khan. And we'll talk about him in just a moment. Um, but prior to that, uh, several, several kind of play lineage holders earlier had come from Afghanistan, from Chist. Um, and then traces itself as, as do all of these tarikas uh, back to, back to the, the, the prophet uh, Muhammad, peace be upon him. So, that's the Inayati order. It's this, it's this particular branch of Sufism that has really, um, in a lot of ways, taken root and flourished in the West, unlike many branches of Sufism that are, that are really mostly um, coming from, from the Middle East or North Africa or other countries. And one of the things that's quite unique about the Inayatiya is its approach to Sufism is, a, is, is one that's universalist. And so you can see that in, in it, it's visible in the manifestation of like the gatherings and the people, the community, because many people who are part of the Inayatiya, I would in fact venture to say probably most people are not Muslim. Mm -hmm. And that's actually not the case with most branches of Sufism around the world. Almost all, there are, there are certainly some uh, exceptions to that. 
and historically there has been, but many um, of the branches of Sufism that you see around the world or even here in Montreal, we have a number of different Sufi groups, uh, they are Muslim. So, so Sufism kind of is seen and understood as, if I go back to your earlier question, some people say, what is Sufism? Oh, it's the mystical branch of Islam. Um, but there's something deeper in the teachings which Hazrat Nayak Khan um, shared with an audience realizing that sometimes the, um, the, the form of the religion, Islam, and this is the case for any religion truly, can serve as a barrier for people in terms of accessing a sense of connection or inclusion or um, you know, sometimes sometimes those structures and forms can 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 really be a barrier to to actually to the unfoldment of the soul. And so when Anayat Khan uh, first came to the West with this body of teachings, quickly realized that there were many sincere seekers who were hungry for this um, wisdom, hungry for this beautiful message that he had to convey of love and harmony and beauty. Those are kind of the values, um, but that, uh, but that it, it was not necessarily appealing for people to convert to Islam. And he was also coming from a background uh, with his teacher and with his family. And in India, certainly there's been a lot of uh, kind of interfaith dialogue, one could say. I don't think that's what they would have called it <laughs> there and then. But as I said, there's historical precedent for, for this much more universalist approach to the Sufi teachings. We see that in the poetry of Rumi, a 13th century uh, Persian poet that speaks about, you know, some of his poems. It says, not Hindu, not Muslim, not Jew, or out beyond, you know, right and wrong. There's a field, I'll meet you there. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot in the heart and the essence of the teachings that speaks about going beyond those structures and those confines of religion. Um, and so that's sort of where that, that's sourced in. But, but the Anayatiya's unique, um, maybe unique isn't the right world, maybe unique means like the only one, and certainly not the only one, but it's rare, I would say, in that regard, that it's universalist. And Later, we'll speak a bit about some of the activities, which include uh, a worship service called the universal worship. But um, so that's the Anayatiya. And then Hazrat Anayat Khan is uh, really the founder of this particular flavor, this particular branch. Uh, he was a man that um, lived in, in India and studied music and while this was at the, the, the late uh, 19th century and while there, uh, studied under a Sufi teacher, and he actually took initiation in four different tarikas and four different lineages. So there was the Tistia, which was his primary lineage, um, and then Surawardia, Nakshbandia, and Kadriya, which are, uh, you know, these are three other uh, kind of branches or lineages of Sufism. And his teacher uh, had um, kind of assigned to him a task of, of, of going to to the west and uniting the east and the west through music huh. so he came to north america with um his family members they were this royal hindustani troupe they were they initially came as as musicians very exotic in the early 1900s um 
and uh, would would they had shows booked and you know there's <laughs> story goes that between the four of them they had one pair of shoes so sometimes they could only go out one at a time <laughs> into the streets of New York and eventually they made their way also out out west to California um, and you can imagine what a sensation they were at that time the bringing this classical Indian music uh, in the in the early 1900s. Um, but also what they would do and, and, and what Hazrat Nayakan in particular would do is he would, he would offer lectures on, on this body of spiritual teachings. And so developed a following, quite, quite a devoted following. And then also not just in the United States, but also in Europe. And, um, and eventually uh, he married, they had four children. Uh, he, he had at that point quite a significant following and um, and a home in uh, in France outside Paris where they would have these summer schools and um, but when his children were all quite young the eldest was just I think 13 14 um, he actually he went back to India where he passed away at a young age this all of this happened before he was you know in his mid-40s and so um, he had a lot of very devoted followers uh, there was some, I would say, confusion um, about who was to pick up that mantle of like the leadership mm -hmm. of the community at that time, um, because he had, th the story goes that he had designated his son, Valiat, as his successor, but his son was uh, very young at the time, was, was a child still. Um, you know, not yet hit puberty, so wasn't wasn't really fit to take that on, and so, um, and and that and apparently that happened in a rather uh, kind of intimate setting where that that wish was expressed, and so other people, the brother, the cousin, like different people, kind of took on the leadership for some time, and there's a whole, you know, interesting and and, and complex history, you know, in that time, then there were, you know, world wars, and actually the eldest child, the daughter, Nuranisa Anayi Khan, um, is a war hero. She was an undercover radio operator in France and was eventually betrayed and killed by the Nazis, and her last dying word was liberté, and, you know, she's, there's a lot of actually now, like, books and movies and things about her. She's quite outside of the Sufi circle. She's well known. But the next, um, the, the second child, Goliath, many, many years later, came uh, to claim that, um, that role as the leader um, of, of the Sufi order. And, uh, and so he, was, he became quite well known, I would say, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and, and 90s, really, as a, as, a, uh, as a phenomenal spiritual leader and teacher. Uh, he had quite a following in Europe and also in North America and um, very, uh, you know, this big white beard and long white hair and, and just loved to meditate kind of in the mountains and loved to meditate on kind of um, the heavenly spheres and was very, was a very, um, I would say, in, in some sense, um, had a very transcendental kind of nature. And and also was very Buddhist. Uh, you know, he had studied many different world religions, and I think a lot of his um, natural tendencies uh, and some of his meditations and teachings kind of were very informed by Buddhism. 
And he passed away in 2004. And prior to that, uh, I think especially having lived through many decades earlier, some of that confusion around kind of who the lineage holder would be, he ensured um, in, uh, in 2000, 2000 and in the year 2000, sorry, in February of 2000, he ensured that there was a very public and very official naming of his son, Pierzia, an icon now, now known affectionately by many as, as, um, as Bawa. Um, he ensured that there was a, that there was a very public and very official ceremony where he passed on kind of the leadership of the uh, of the of the order, and this took place in India, where every year in February there's a celebration on the anniversary of the death of Hazrat Naik Khan. It's called an urs uh, in India. That's that's the term that's used. I'm sure you know many different traditions have that. Um, you know, we celebrate birthdays, but we also celebrate death days because death is represents that great union, <laughs> the union with the beloved. But that was that was the investiture for of Pierzia at the time of kind of the leadership of the North American um, NIT order and then later kind of worldwide. And so Pierre Vallayat passed away in 2004 and since then it's really been his his son who's who's taken on that mantle of, of spiritual leadership and Pierre and who's been guiding uh, many of us, myself included for the last um, close to 20 years. Oh, wow. How are these figures kind of viewed? Is it, you, you know, we, we've talked to some some people from different traditions, right? Where they have, um, uh, perhaps the, the head of their of their groups are viewed as um, enlightened gurus, uh, in, in a few cases, even uh, embodied divine beings. What, uh, how, how are the, the cons sort of understood religiously in, in yeah. this, this kind of sense? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, to be fair, different people see and relate to them differently. Um, it is a devotional path, and there are certainly people in the community who are uh, incredibly devotional. Um, and and there are teachings, there are stories of, of um, it, there's a whole aspect of the teaching of losing oneself, losing oneself in, um, in sort of one's teacher, losing oneself in these divine messengers that have come, you know, over the course of history through the form of, you know, Jesus or Moses or whatnot, and ultimately losing oneself in God. And so, but there's 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 actually an aspect of the teaching that's about losing oneself in the teacher. And I think that um, there are certainly some people that have a bit more of a tendency in their, you know, in their soul towards that. For the most part, though, I would say that this community um, is, it, it's not a guru culture. Uh, and uh, Pierzia has never uh, been in the habit of, nor I think would he ever begin uh, telling people, kind of giving advice, telling people what to do with their lives. I can say for myself personally, there's been times when I, I wish deeply he would, I would go to him with a dilemma or a question and be like, tell me what to do. And, uh, but that's certainly not, that's not part of the spiritual guidance, really the, the notion of uh, the spiritual guide is to really help the individual access their own inner guidance. And so I think that um, 
especially in these more recent times, these last few decades, I would say there's been a, a, a lot of caution around wanting to, wanting to avoid any kind of uh, culture or practice wherein a person kind of hands over their autonomy or in any way, you know, to, to the teacher as, as that, as that like full-blown guru. Um, and there's things like, you know, people sometimes, we, we have interactions with many different people from many different traditions and everyone's practices are different. But, you know, I remember uh, one time somebody who came to visit, um, this was at the abode of the message, which was the Sufi community in upstate New York where, where Pierzia lived and taught for many years. And I lived there for a number of years. And I remember a, a, a visiting young man um, at a certain point when, when he went to greet Pierzia, he, he kind of went down on the ground and like kneeled and like wanted and 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 immediately Pierzia kind of lifted it up. It was like, you know, so there's certain gestures of uh, of deference, of 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 respect um, that might be uh, expected in, in certain other contexts, but uh, you know, we we certainly have we have an eye towards respect and 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 compassion and and um, good behavior. We call it adab. But uh, but but yeah, I guess I guess this idea that um, you know your question of like how are how are they viewed? I mean, these are really viewed as as human beings. You know, these are human beings who have been given um, a role. In Pierzia's case, he really I see and understand him as um, having a duty to. Uh, carry on and um, in some cases even kind of unearth some of the original teachings of his grandfather of Hazrat Khan, and to really hold that tradition and and to and that's that's the focus you know that's the concentration that's and and there are other people who have come into contact with the order and with the teachings who have then taken some pieces of those teachings and branched out and, and kind of developed perhaps an entirely new school that incorporates some aspects of Sufism, but it might also incorporate some other things and so on. And, and that of course is, is fine. And that's, you know, that person's path, but I really see that Piercy's um, path is around maintaining the tradition and really um, revealing what is the message, but in this time, you know, it's now some hundred years later and, and how does this message come alive in, in all of us at this time? Yeah. Um, the only thing I love more than listening to our guests is the sound of my own voice. So, <laughs> uh, Bishop Laney, uh, do you have any, uh, any questions or uh, anything to kind of follow up on, uh, on what Sarah was saying? I was kind of interested in some of your descriptions about, um, like, for example, losing yourself and the teacher. And uh, you think you talked about how your teacher does not really uh encourage that and encourages people to point them to their own inner guidance do you think that that kind of uh that would be something that would vary from culture to culture because i would think that in the united states where we are very uh individualistic uh that could be a challenge on, on a couple of counts one would be that some people being unused to that kind of a tradition being that they might be converts may fall right head, head first into it while others would be very resistant do you see within Sufism, or at least your 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 branch of Sufism, um, is there is there um, 
do does it adapt to different cultures and the, the, the teaching and how and, the, and how it how it's practiced yeah um it's a great question i think that this particular branch of sufism has developed and been adapted to and by and with like a more western audience so i i do know for example of certain um other Sufi branches, other tarikas, where um, it wouldn't be entirely uncommon, for example, for the for the sheikh or the 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 murshid to to, for example, um, you know, not 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 fully, it's not forced, but like to to arrange perhaps some marriages. Okay. Now again, when you think about like for us, the notion of arranged marriages always feels so sort of I think oppressive and kind of you know, like a loss of autonomy, but in a lot of like Muslim cultures, that's not uncommon. No, not at all. No, and, and in, in, in Orthodox Jewish cultures and so on. So, so it's also, it's, it's, it's also deeply dependent on the culture of, of the, of the individuals that are kind of upholding that lineage. But this particular lineage, as I said, has been very influenced by, uh, by Western Europeans, by North Americans, since, since it first really began to flourish and take root and develop a following. And at the same time, there's a significant influence of, uh, of culture from India, I would say, certainly the music and so a lot of the aesthetic and you know the practices that we do are often in, in Arabic. Um, and so, I'm not sure if I've kind of lost a bit the thread of what you were asking. No, I, I was just interested in, 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 you know, the cultural variations and that was helpful. Um, yeah. What, what you just had to say. And, you know, of course, up until fairly recently, not, you know, not, not so long ago, most Western Christians arranged marriages as well. Yeah. Yeah. That was just kind of one example. I, I yeah. But I, I guess that, um, you know, this, this particular brand of Sufism has, uh, a significant amount of leeway for the individual expression. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, there are a number of principles of, of core teachings that I think give it its particular flavor, which is which is unique from the flavor of other traditions. And that and that flavor has been very influenced by North Americans, by by Westerners and um, yeah. And, and and contemporary, you know. Yeah, absolutely. That, that, thank you. I want. I just wanted to get some my better idea about that. The other question that I had is, um, you mentioned lineage a lot, and that there's you know, various lineages. Um, is that true throughout Sufism that it, that a legitimate, so to speak, a Sufi group or a Sufi teacher would have a lineage, and it would not be something that a person just could pop up and start doing. Yeah, well, I would say typically, yes. Typically, any particular, like when I've encountered Sufis of different backgrounds from around the world or here in Montreal, part of how they identify is, and we, and we identify is through our lineage, you know, okay. not just kind of who's your teacher, but what, what is that branch? Oh, it's the Chistia, okay. You know, oh, it's, mm -hmm. it's Akhandia, okay. And, and it gives some sense and there's different branches within that, you know, but um, so I would say that most, most Sufi groups 
um, and they and they are typically a, a, an initiatic mm-hmm. kind of lineage. So there is this concept of this kind of unbroken chain of transmission. So I, you know, the initiation when it when we're not in the middle of a pandemic takes place face to face and the hand to hand. So it's literally a taking hand. Okay. You know, and I'll clasp hands with my teacher or initiator who received that hand clasp from, you know, their teacher initiator who received it from theirs and so on and so forth. So people trace this unbroken chain of transmission back, all the way back. And so it's, it's, um, so there is a certain sense of identity and legitimacy that comes through that. It's, it's not, un, it's not entirely sort of different from, um, in a lot of ways, some of the indigenous, the way the way the indigenous um, nations and, and tribes identify, you know, um, through who who their parents or grandparents were, or where where they came from, and so on. It's it's a lot through the ancestors. Now that being said, I guess I would just um, be cautious to say, well, that is the only possible legitimate form of, mm-hmm. of an expression of Sufism, because I do think that there. Are as I mentioned, there are people who have been able to, um, I mean, throughout all of history, there are people, who, people who've been able to access a stream of, of wisdom and, and guidance, you know, sometimes through external forms, sometimes through, you know, an inner um, transmission. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't say just automatically that if someone doesn't have a very specific lineage that like, we must discredit them. You know, I think I think it bears further inquiry into you know what what is the quality of presence and what is what is the real message behind what they're bringing in and where is it sourced from? Sure, I was yeah, thank you. I, I appreciate that. I just wanted to to get some idea. Sometimes we talk about initiation and lineages on this show and what are the limitations and you know because we know people who have technically a legitimate initiation or lineage, but <laughs> right, um, and that sometimes um, I know our colleague. Gnostic colleague, Rosamund Miller, talks about wild gnosis, something that will spring up um, that can happen as well. So I wanted to get your take on it. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Sarah, are there any uh, misconceptions that you've encountered about Sufism and perhaps Islam in general? (laughs) Well, I think think in this day and age, there are a lot of misconceptions around around Islam, um, around the world. And um, I mean, if I... I mean, there there may there may even be among Muslims some misconceptions around around Islam. Um, I don't want to necessarily get into that. That's a very big topic. But I guess um, when it comes to to misconceptions around Sufism, it's a little tricky to say once again because part of the way in which I've lived and learned about this path does allow for um, so much individual expression, so much of the individual's journey towards the divine. And so, as I said earlier, I think people people could, um, you know, say, oh, well, well, Sufism is this, and someone else will say, oh, look, absolutely not, Sufism is not, you know, so, so, um, I, I grew up with parents who were involved in this Sufi community and Sufi teachings and Sufi practices. And I remember 
when I was in college, there was a guest speaker who came in our religion class, a Muslim man who spoke about Sufism. And I was like, oh, you know, like I was like 17 years old. I was like, oh yeah, like my family's Sufi. And he's like, oh, so you're Muslim. And I'm like, no, we're not Muslim. He's like, then you're not Sufi. And I'm like, but we're Sufi. He's like, then you're Muslim. And so I think that um, I wouldn't call it a misconception because I, I, I think Sufism really does have so much of its roots and so much of its trunk and branches and leaves, et cetera, like embedded within the context of, of, of the practice of Islam. But, but I think that the, um, the truth and the beauty of this particular lineage kind of stands as an alternative to that understanding of Sufism, that it doesn't have to necessarily only exist um, within Islam. And yeah, I guess, I guess one of the things that I, I think is so interesting about this path, and I think probably any mystical path, it's so magical because on the one hand, there's this universality, right? There's this concept of like, we've come from the same source, we're returning to the same destination, this, what we're living, all of which we, we, we see and experience and, and perceive, all of which, you know, appears to be reality, there's something deeper behind it, and, and so much of this is transient, but that there's something fundamental that is not transient that we're working our way towards. And so there's this, there's this sense of, of, of um, universality and unity. And at the same time, there's this sense of deeply personal, deeply individual, like the journey is so different for each person. And yes, there are stages and stations along the way that can be uh, identified and even named and kind of one can recognize, but, but the lived experience is so personal. You know, sometimes they say um, there are as many paths to God as there are breaths in this world. So one can imagine like every moment, how many times am I breathing and every hour and every day and every week. And so for each person that's living, every breath that's being taken can, is equivalent to like one of the many paths to God. Um, so yeah, so I guess I don't, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't feel equipped to say, well, you know, this here is a particular misconception or that is a misconception. I think that there's a lot of different expressions of Sufism. I think there's a lot of different ways that it's lived. And I think it's important um, to bear that in mind, especially for those of us who whose access points are through something like this in Ayatia, where one can kind of go to a class at a center in a city in the States, and there might be some singing, and there are like men, like white men and non-Muslim men and women sitting there, and maybe they're holding hands and you know, there's a prayer that's recited or a meditation or whatnot, and then they could walk away and say, well, now I know what Sufism is, you know, and, and I try to really caution people to, to, um, to understand that this is one expression and, and that um, it's helpful and beneficial to, to know more about how other people practice it as well. Yeah. Um, we've, we've kind of touched on this, or you've touched on this a little bit, but 
what are Sufis trying to achieve? And what I mean by that question is, say, you know, Buddhists are, are striving for enlightenment, and yeah. some Christians are, are striving to go to heaven when they die, and Gnostics strive for, for Gnosis, you know. So, so what, what is the Sufi trying to achieve? Yeah, well, I mean, ultimately, the Sufis see that the goal of, of, of everybody, whether they identify as Sufi or not, is, is ultimately that, that reunion with what's known in, in Sufi circles as the beloved, like the reunion with, with the, the one. So that re-immersion into divine unity. Now that, that uh, you know, according to the teachings happens regardless of whether one, <laughs> whether one kind of practices Sufism or not. I think that, um, I think that there's kind of two things that come to mind for me around this. One is to recognize that like the journey is the goal. And so this whole period of time in which we are dancing with this, you know, elusive or, or illusory rather reality that, that all of all of this like physical manifestation and all of the, the 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 psychodramas and everything that we're that we're living as individuated selves that's part of the journey and so not to deny or negate that but to recognize that it kind of comes back to what i was saying earlier with that quote about like seeking god in the heart of humanity that as we as we go through this life and it's not just humanity, it's, it's, it's all of the world around us. It's certainly all of nature and the animals and, and, and you know, the, the, the earth itself. Like these are all parts of the journey. These are all uh, expressions of the divine. I guess there's a, um, there's, a, there's a hadith that speaks like sort of in, in God's voice saying, I was a hidden treasure that longed to be known. And so I created the world. And so it's, it's so fascinating to me. There's so much depth to that because to even think of, to even conceive of a God-like creature that had a longing, that had a desire, that wasn't just 100% fulfilled by its own existence is, is kind of mind blowing in and of itself. Just that, that, that like, that there was a God that, that wanted something that couldn't be fulfilled through its own self, you know? And, and that, that longing was to be known, that longing was to be seen, to be beheld. And so all of the world came into manifestation in order to reflect the divine to the divine. This is like, this is, this is amazing to me. Like I get excited thinking about it because it's really like, that's the worldview of the Sufis is, is that everything is a mirror of the divine. Sometimes you'll encounter a Sufi and you'll be like, oh, you're so radiant. You're so, you know, beautiful. And they'll be like, oh, it's just, it, what you see is just a mirror of yourself. You know, it's a very common kind of response. And so this idea that we have in and of ourselves, each of us a duty to reflect the divine to the divine, but also that we have a duty to everything we encounter to see and understand and look for the way in which it is also a reflection of the divine, uh, perhaps, you know, in some distorted or misguided ways at times. But that's, that's one of the kind of beautiful elements of the worldview. 
And I guess the other point I wanted to touch upon, you talk about like, what is the, what, what are the Sufis trying to achieve? I think within that, throughout that journey, there's a real focus on effacement of the ego. And um, not, not to the, well, so <laughs> I was going to say not to the point where there's a complete dissolution of the self, but actually historically, sometimes that has been the point. Um, and, and, and at that point, when, when you know, the entire uh, sense of self and ego structure melts away, like oftentimes people would, people would just spontaneously like pass away. They, their, their journey here was done. <laughs> That's what the stories say. Now, now there's a, quite a lot of, um, you know, there, there's more, I would say, psychological approaches <laughs> to ego development. And so there's more of an emphasis on like a healthy relationship with self, with mind, with body, with heart, with, with sense of identity and so on. Um, such that we're not, uh, we're, we're, we're not looking for people to, you know, completely dissolve into nothingness, but, but to stay attentive to the journey and to kind of, um, have that like attitude of, 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 um, being in the world, but not of it. Hmm. So there's more I could say, but like I said, I'm a bit chatty, so I know you have some other questions and, and time is going by, so. <laughs> no, that's amazing. Thank you. And we, we aim for chatty and we love to get uh, in depth of stuff, right? So this is, we, we have a very passionate audience. Yeah. Uh, anybody who subscribes, who listens to the podcast, who, who watches on YouTube, they really want to go deep with this okay. stuff. Okay, yeah. yeah. I so, get it. So, yeah. So uh, what are some examples of spiritual practices in your community? Sure. Yeah. Well, there are, uh, there are a lot. I mean, one, um, one very basic practice, which is so foundational that I, I think, you know, in some senses, one can lose sight of the fact that it's a practice is the reciting of what we call the invocation. We just call it the invocation. <laughs> but it's, it's a, it, it, it's a, a kind of short setting of an intention that is said kind of perhaps multiple times, like many, many times a day. And certainly anytime our community gathers, we begin with this invocation. Um, and uh, and I, I can imagine anyone in their own personal practice might, like I say, recite it many, many times in the course of a day. But I'll share it with you because it's relatively short. And this is, this is in the Anayatiya when we talk about the invocation. This is what we're referring to. Toward the one, the perfection of love, harmony, and beauty, the only being, united with all the illuminated souls who form the embodiment of the master, the spirit of guidance. Beautiful. So within that, you kind of see there's this, what we sometimes talk about, that vertical dimension of toward the one, like the individual uh, journey towards unity and then also what we sometimes think of as the horizontal dimension that united with all so both of those elements are contained within that invocation but um just to touch upon quickly some other practices uh because that's really just like a you know a very brief <laughs> way that we open perhaps a practice or a gathering uh we have this we have a um, very common daily practice is a series of what we call like elemental breaths or purification breaths, where we do kind of breathing through the nose, you know, either in and out through the nose or the mouth alternating. 
and um, and in particular, in its current form, it's often attuning to the to the elements, um, earth, water, fire, air. Uh, sometimes also, and, and this kind of speaks to some of the history of this particular lineage having come through India, we have some um, practices that include like sort of alternate nostril, you know, which, which are very, very similar to yogic breathing practices. Sure. They just hold their hands in a slightly different way, but it's kind of, you know, almost identical. Um, and you see sort of where, where some of the yogis and the Sufis were, were in contact there in India. We also have um, a set of, of daily prayers. There's three prayers, three bigger prayers that are recited kind of, you know, typically in morning, midday, evening, and, um, and, and some other smaller prayers that accompany them. And, and uh, practitioners are also encouraged to um, work with their own personal prayers and to actually explore what prayer means for them and their stages of prayer. Um, you know, in terms of sort of supplication and gratitude and 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 so on. There, so so when one studies this path a little more deeply, there's all of these kind of um, underlying frameworks that emerge that we that one can learn about. You know, I said earlier that there's like each path is so unique, but there's like stations and stages, and there's recognizable frameworks um, for that. So certainly. Um, you know, concentration or meditation, uh, si silencing the mind, stilling the body, uh, focusing one's attention, um, breathing practices, prayers, and then the, I guess the last piece I want to touch on, I mean, there's lots of other practices too that have to do with nature and, and music and, you know, interaction with others and so on, but um, is what we call, what we call wazifa. Or, or plural is wazaif. And so this is a word that actually means um, uh, duty. I think in, um, in like uh, Persian or, or Arabic, it's sometimes even used in a more like professional context, like one's, you know, work. But, um, but in the context of the Anayatiya, certainly, in, and, and I think probably in other Sufi traditions, a wazifa is a, is a personal practice that's given to one by one's guide, mm -hmm. um, where there's a recitation uh, often using like a, a set of prayer beads, we call them tasbis, otherwise, you know, like rosaries or malas, like there's a particular number of beads and the, and the, um, the, the practice is done for a certain number of times when it, re it repeats it out loud um, each day, or maybe multiple times a day. And that's one that's usually given individually by the person's spiritual guide. Um, and it's it's for them, and it's it's for a period of time. It may be a long period of time or a short period of time. And then there's sometimes like um, collective wazaif. So recently in this time with the pandemic and so on, Piercy has been doing weekly classes online every Sunday. And uh, early on, he he offered for our entire community um, that we can work with the the wazifa khair, um, which means like wellness. Or well-being, and so these practices are are not and it, are not always done with one's own personal kind of uh, you know gain in mind. Sometimes they can be deeply personal, but but oftentimes they're also taking into account a more uh, global mindset in terms of um, you know like many spiritual traditions, there's an understanding that the work that we do, the 
practices that we do, the, the, the atmosphere that we create influences the world around us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we touched on this uh, again a little bit earlier, but uh, what does initiation mean to you? Yeah, well, I think it's really about linking in, committing to and linking into that particular lineage, that particular body of teachings. In this case, as I said, the actual initiation ritual involves a, a clasping of hands and a verbal commitment to uh, the values and, of love and harmony and beauty. And so um, it's, it's often understood as an outer expression of, of what has already been achieved as an inner state, uh, that, that the actual initiation ritual is just a, a kind of an affirmation of what's already known within the person that, that this, is, this is a path that they're committing to. So I, I think I'll probably just leave it at that for, for now with this. <laughs> Now we are starting to run late on time, so I'm going to skip ahead a bit on our question sheet. And again, I'm probably going to need your uh, help with pronunciation or correction. But uh, what is the Myland Chavra? Yeah. And, and, and how did you get involved? Yeah. So the Myland Chavra. So Myland is a neighborhood in Montreal. For those who don't know, it's a kind of a very, an increasingly been an increasingly hip hipster neighborhood in the last couple of decades but um, it's a great little neighborhood in Montreal. And Chavura refers to, uh, well, there's the Chavura movement, which is sort of historically like Jews gathering together in, in sort of like an alternative to established kind of institutions. Oftentimes it's a little more non-denominational, egalitarian. Um, and so Mile and Chavura is a Chavura, like a community of Jews in the mile end. And in fact, it's not even entirely accurate to say it's a community of Jews because certainly non-Jews are also welcome and there are people who come who are not necessarily, you know, technically Jewish. It's not, it's not really a, a matter of, it's not, it's not a matter of concern. And so this is a group of people that um, began uh, gathering and talking about coming together perhaps about 10, 12 years ago, around the same time that I moved back to Montreal and decided that um, in particular in the city of Montreal, most of the, the synagogues and temples and other kind of places for Jew, Jews to gather are more in the West End. And they also have a particular flavor that wasn't speaking to this group of kind of younger, more progressive, alternative uh, Jews that were like living in Mile End. So they said, let's, let's create something here. And so I wasn't part of those very initial conversations, but very quickly got connected into that community, largely through my brother, who's who's very uh, who, who who's an avid practitioner of certain aspects of Jewish ritual, and and so um, he was kind of famous for hosting these Friday night dinners, and so people were like, "You need to meet these people," and you know, by association, and um, and so Milan Chavra became uh, registered and became like an official nonprofit some 10, 12 years ago. And I've been involved as a community member. Um, a lot of what they do is, is events, these Shabbat dinners, these Friday night dinners, uh, things around the Jewish calendar, the high holidays or Passover, et cetera. It's a very open, inviting, welcoming, accessible environment. Part of um, 
the Khavara movement historically is it's people just kind of gathering in people's homes. There's no kind of building or there's no rabbi. There's, you know, so over time we've grown a lot. Uh, we've kind of outgrown in some cases for certain events, we've outgrown people's homes. So now we've started to, you know, book events at, uh, sorry, book locations for our programs and events and our high holidays bring in some 300 plus people we use the Ukrainian federation um and uh and and i think it's there's something in this that really speaks to people it's no longer just about okay where's like the geographical alternative to going to the west end there's something about the flavor of what we offer and while we don't have a rabbi we have um a woman rachel who who kind of functions as our spiritual leader who's a wonderful musician and just has a big open heart and and just such a uh such a wonderful grace and 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 presence and eloquence to her and we bring in sometimes guest teachers and so on and and i would say i guess about a year like 15 months ago i finally joined the board of directors so i'm now co-chairing the board of the Milan Havara. We're still very grassroots. We have one part-time employee. Everything else is done by volunteers. And you know, we don't we have a small budget. We're not, you know, part of part of our values is around like accessibility. And so we don't like to charge very much. Sometimes we don't like to charge at all for what we do. We want it to stay as open and accessible and welcoming of everybody as possible. Yeah. Well, uh, we'll start to wrap it up, uh, but uh, kind of a leading question that I think I know the answer to. But just uh, just a clarification for for people who are who are watching or listening and interested in everything you have to say. So, if if there's an, an Indiaatia community in your area, and you're a curious spiritual seeker, or perhaps you're already dedicated on a path, you're uh, you're Jewish, you're Christian, you're Gnostic, um, can you? Can you come? Can you can you go to events? Do you have to formally join? Do you have to just belong to uh, Inayatia and nothing else? <laughs> uh, no to that last question, and yes to all the previous questions. So yes, I mean it's sort of similar. You know, and this is sort of like you know making a bit the link between my involvement with Inayatia and the Milan Havara. There's no there's no conflict there, and um, and certainly. The Inayatia has centers around North America and in Europe, and there are people who lead those centers, who lead classes and meditations and activities there, and everybody is always welcome, uh, as long as 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 long as they're respectful of others, right? There's there's not um, a high degree of tolerance for you know racism and sexism and all of that, but if people can come and 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 be respectful then uh, certainly anyone is welcome. And people can, there are people who go to centers for years and years and years participating in activities and never, so to speak, take initiation. Same with many of the uh, centralized NIATIA programs, a lot of the events over the course of the year, a lot of like all of um, Piercia's online classes these days, every Sunday, they're all uh, for the most part, free and open to the public. Sometimes there's an, you know, a, if you want to give a donation, and so a lot of the a lot of the Anaitia, uh events and activities are open to to anyone who wants to, and there's never any uh, pressure to take initiation or to join or to you know you're not part of us. Um, it's we're we're a global family. It's you know all of humanity is is part of us. Um, and that being said, there are also certain programs that are designated for people who are initiates, 
and there are certain programs that are designated for people who are who are leaders and so that's the content of those is geared towards you know that particular audience so um you know for example we have a new just this fall there's a new uh class starting for this Saluk Academy, which is like this global online format where it's never happened like that before. It was always a face-to-face -face thing. But in order to participate in Saluk Academy, it is geared towards people who are initiated either within the Anayatiya or within some of the brother-sister branches, because there's a few branches that came out of Hazrat Nayak Khan, um, so that there's some familiarity within commitment to that particular body of teachings. Um, but yeah, for the most part, yeah, like if you're in a place, if you're listening to this and you're in a place and you see that there's some Anayatiya Center and you want to check it out, but you're worried that you're not whatever enough, like, trust me, you are whatever enough. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> uh, lady, uh, I'll give you the last word if you have any uh, the closing questions. I really don't have anything. It's, it's really very instructive. Um, uh, far from being, you know, the, the chattiness was great because it gave me a heck of a lot more context yeah. than I ever could have gotten if we were just going question and answer. So it was delightful to hear about um, how, you know, you sound like you're very grounded in this community. And uh, it's just delightful to hear about just another expression of, a, of, of, an, of an ancient faith tradition. So it's quite remarkable. Thank you. Oh yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. And and yeah, I I mean I could talk about this for hours and hours, but I guess like, you know, none of that replaces the the lived felt experience sure. of yeah. you know being in community and being in the practice with with others. So you know, if I I know Jonathan and I have had a chance to do some practice together, mm -hmm. but if if you or others are are curious about Sufism, certainly there's many texts out there. There's lots of information. There's lots of talks, but I think the the experiential component of uh, you know feeling that presence, feeling that quality of the heart um, with others is is uh, is irreplaceable. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, well, I guess we will wrap this up. Uh, thanks so much, Sarah. It was awesome having you. Um, and uh, to, to speak to the crowd, to, to the dedicated talk gnosis people out there, uh, I know that you all watch and consume a lot of podcasts and a lot of YouTube shows. So you're used to, to the Patreon uh, uh, spiel, uh, but uh, I know these are trying times, but if you have uh, even uh, an extra dollar to donate, uh, please hit up our Patreon. The details are... Um, below whether you're listening to this on a podcatcher or on uh youtube and uh if you can't we absolutely understand i for instance uh don't have any money uh ever so i relate to that uh welcome to the life of a working writer um but if you do like what we're doing and uh you're unable to donate uh please share the show tell someone that you that you know who might like it about the show send it to them send them this episode this episode rocks they'll love it so that's all i've got to say uh good night good luck godspeed and thanks so much for joining us thank you thank you guys thank you, thank you.